Welcome to C4 Church Online, equipping you as you follow Jesus. Well, good morning, everybody. So glad that you're here this morning. Want to say good morning to everyone uh, up north in Port Perry. Later today, all of you meeting in Bowmanville, want to say good evening to you and everyone watching online, wherever you are in the world. Two weeks ago, I received a text from my wife that read like this. The mouse, and there's a mouse emoji, by the way, is under the TV unit, dash, not impressed, one, two, three, four, five exclamations. When I received this, I laughed out loud. I thought it was fantastic. And I called her and I said, what's going on? She says, I am sitting and there is a mouse in front of me. Come home and deal with it. And I said to her, I'm so sorry, babe, I'm working. And I kept laughing. She says, this is not funny. I said, I will never understand uh, women. Uh, Jerry Sunfield years ago said, I don't understand. You can have people rip hair out at the roots, but you're afraid of spiders. Please help me understand. So I, I smiled and I said, babe, I'll be home later. And she, I came home and she said, look, she said, you got to deal with this mouse. I said, no problem. I'll get the traps and I'll deal with it. Well, I forgot to deal with it and we moved on and the mouse did not appear for a while. It was a few days later and as I was starting the morning routine, trying to get children out of the house, which is a miracle every single day. One way I tried to help was turn the car on beforehand. So it was cold out because it's been a cold winter. So I put on my big Sorel boots. And as I begin to walk on my boots, I go, wow, that frills really weird in my boot. Like there's a sock in there. And so I keep walking out to the van and I turn it on and say, this is really strange. And so I walk back in the house and then there's this moment, there's this squish and I went, oh, that isn't a sock. Right when it happened, I said to myself, I guarantee you that's the mouse. And so I took off my boot and there was a very weird color on my socks. So I took those off and I smelt my boot and it wasn't my feet. And I was like something. And then I gingerly read and out came the broken mouse that I had crushed to death with my foot. All, all the people like, oh, the poor mouse. Other people like, kill them all. Okay. So, so then I went and I put it in a bag and I tied it up. And then I went to my wife and said, you won't believe what just happened. We still haven't gone to the house, but I just stepped on the mouse in the boot. She freaked it. She's like, burn the boot. Get it out of the house. We don't want it. I said, babe, we can wash it. No, get rid of the boot. I said, babe, I grew up in Costa Rica. We used to have like spiders and scorpions in her. She's like, I don't care. Remove this. Now, we finally did get the mouse out and we got the children out and everyone else. But why did I bring this up this morning? Well, beyond it being hilarious, it's this. If you don't deal with a problem, it doesn't go away, it will come back. And what's been so interesting as we've been walking and navigating this journey together as a family through the book of 1 Corinthians, how to live as a fully devoted follower of Jesus in a de-Christian, post-Christian, yet modern, pluralistic, multicultural city called the GTA. As we've been walking with Paul for 10 chapters, because he was writing to a community very similar to ours 2,000 years ago, he suddenly summarizes all the conversation and all the struggle and all the problems. And he chooses so strategically to bring them all to a close in chapter 10 by dealing with one issue. Can a Christian still attend a pagan temple feast and be okay with God? Now, as we've learned, temples functioned as communal gathering places in Corinth, very much like what we do at a Starbucks or a modern-day restaurant. It was a social place, it was a communal place, and really it's where you got your food. Now, in other cases, it was sexual, no doubt about it. But in all cases, it was religious. 
So some temples were literally like McDonald's. You'd go and eat and hang out with your friends and all the food in front of you would be dedicated to idols, but you were there for the social aspect. Others were more like strip clumps, great food, religious activity, but you would sleep with a religious prostitute to serve and honor that God. And as we learned a few months ago, one temple alone in Corinth had 1,000 religious sex trade workers that you were meant to sleep with to honor those gods. So the temple is where you ate and where you fooled around and where you made social and business contacts and where you did life, but there's more. The temple communities, and there were many, were connected to your everyday employment. See, Corinth was built around guilds, sort of like modern-day unions. So the doctors and the nurses and the plumbers and fill-in-the-blank would have their own guilds, and they would have celebrations, and all the doctors in the city would come to one of the temples, and they would meet as the doctor's association, and then they would worship the patron deity of their guild. And so you'd even be called to worship the emperor at points. So if you didn't choose to start participating in these things, you'd be an outsider in your own profession and even could lose your job. So you've got sex, money, business, job, pleasure, demons, food, and worship all wrapped into one conversation. So what do you do as a Christian? And Paul says, now look, we've touched on all these issues before, but now let's ask the question to summarize. Is there any time, any place where a Christian is actually allowed to go into one of these environments and eat or stay? And actually, Paul says, is there anywhere in all of holy history where God and God's people had this conversation already so we know what is right and wrong? And Paul says, oh, absolutely there is. It's the story of the people of God as they were wandering between Egypt and the promised land. See, the Corinthian church was about to go down and was going down a terrible path that had already been down before, which leads to pain and sin. Now, if you don't know history, you're bound to repeat it again, and that's Paul's point. If you let the mouse stay around, you're going to step on it. So Paul says, let's go back and look at God's people, and let's work this out. He says in 1 Corinthians 10.1, For I don't want you to be ignorant of the fact, my brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses into the cloud and the sea. So if you know the story, after 10 plagues, God sets his people free. After 420 years of slavery, two profound events took place. Number one, as God led them out, they faced the Red Sea. And God literally, physically split the Red Sea and the people of God walked right through it. And when the Egyptian army came to slaughter them and put them back into slavery, God wiped them out. So the Red Sea was salvation and redemption and deliverance and recovery and escape and rescue. But it wasn't just rescue itself because God did something else that's just as profound. God also gave them ongoing presence. It reads like this in Exodus 13, 21, by day, The Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light. Now, we've talked about this many times before. Maybe you're a guest today and you don't know about this. This is called the Shekinah glory of God. It's the very dwelling presence of God. God is omnipresent, but he chooses to become palpable and draw close. And in this case, he actually is physically seen. And like I've preached before, we actually need to get our view of the cloud right. When I think about clouds, I think about July and looking up into the sky, and I think about snuggly ads, and I think about cotton balls, and I think about angels eating cream cheese somewhere. No. The cloud will speed your heart up if you saw this one. It will break you. It will take you to a place where you will begin to tremble. It will stop you in your tracks. It is full of God's literal glory 
and God's very light and lightning and power. And most importantly, it is filled with ongoing, never stopping fire. It is a cloud you cannot fly through. If you did, you'd be stopped like concrete. The the cloud is pulsing with life and there's fire flashing out of it because actually the cloud is the Holy Spirit. So here's the point. The people of God in Exodus knew God. God knew them and they loved each other. His presence was physically right in front of them the whole time. And this is Paul's point. So the same with us as Christians, if you are one. When you became a Christian, you were baptized in the Holy Spirit immediately. At conversion, you were baptized by the Spirit of God into Jesus. And not only that, then, second of all, you were water baptized to demonstrate your spirit baptism. Our baptisms of fire and water are more powerful than the Jews experienced under Moses. Yet Paul's coming point is simply this, that God was among his people and they loved him deeply and though they loved God and they swore allegiance to God, it did not stop them from doing one terrible thing called idolatry. And this pattern was being repeated again and again in Corinth, even though the Corinthians and us, if you're a Christian here today, we have more grace, more power, and more encounter with God because we know who God is fully through Jesus and the Spirit of God lives in us. Paul says, well, let's keep going in the story. Here's example two. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them and that rock was Christ. He says, do you remember the story? Number one, what's shocking here is Paul, as an Orthodox Jew, was saying Jesus was in the desert. Why? Because Jesus is God. But deeper than that, this is referring to the issue of having no water and no food. Exodus 16.2, in the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the Israelites said to them, if only we had died by God's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted, but you have brought us into this desert to starve the entire assembly to death. Wow. What in the world happened? What changed? What, when did abuse and 420 years of human trafficking and slavery and no freedom, and humans being treated like animals, and systematic death become Disney World with clean streets and great fruit and justice for all and fun for the whole family. Since when in the world did that place become the best buffet ever produced by a human chef? Well, of course it happened when they had nothing less to support them except God. And so when God's the only one you've got and all the other stuff is gone, when you, you are left with you and God, they said, I don't like this. I'm not used to this. I can't just trust God. So actually, let's look backwards because we are used to it. Now, what did God do in that terrible moment of rebellion and idolatry and selfishness? Amazingly, if you know the story, he loved them. He gave them manna, bread from heaven, and he fed the entire assembly. Then he sent quail to them, and all these people suddenly had meat that they didn't have. And then amazingly, even more, God told Moses to strike a rock, and water literally came out of a rock where there was no water. But Paul reminds us in verse 5, nevertheless, despite all of that, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness, And these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. So here's the lesson. Don't set your heart. Don't lust after. Do not want. Don't lean in towards things that are wicked, demonic, self-absorbed, or idolatry. Run. Because idolatry brings death, pain, and separation. And what is the ultimate ongoing experience of sin in the human family, even now in this place and all around the world? It's idolatry. 
That's why Paul says explicitly in the next verse, do not, if you're a Christian, be an idolater. But we need to ask ourselves the question this morning. I mean, what in the world is idolatry? I mean, it's a churchy word. What does it really mean? Well, first of all, let me say this. Idolatry is the greatest danger to every human being on earth right now. It started when Satan looked into the eyes of Eve and Adam and said, do not trust God. And said to them, well, I'm created and both you, Eve and Adam, you're created. But actually, even though God is uncreated, God has no right to tell us what to do, who to be, how to live, where to go, or what to do with our lives. We can be better kings and we can be better gods. Here's how Paul summarized idolatry in every form. Human beings exchange the truth of God for a lie. And they choose to worship and serve created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Anyone want to say amen? When you worship anything that is created, humans, yourself, pleasure, happiness, meaning, identity, idols, demons, money, worldview, spirituality, anything that has a starting point that is not God can become an idol. And here's what Paul says to this church saying, well, can we fool around on God and still keep the marriage healthy? Do not be idolaters. As some of us, some of them were, as it is written, the, priest, they, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge and revelry. You're like, John, I'm totally confused. What's that about? Paul says, oh, that's example three. Do you know the story? Moses goes up the mountain to be with God to get the Ten Commandments. God is actually now on the mountain and Moses is in, literally in the Shekinah glory, hearing what God wants to do next to bless his people and honor his people and love his people and give them greater freedom. And down on the other side of the mountain, the people got impatient, didn't know if Moses was coming back. And so what do they do? They turn to idols. So the next day, Exodus 32, 6, the people rose early, they sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. And afterwards, they sat down to eat and drink and indulge in revelry. And God said to Moses, say, hey, Moses, go down because your people whom you brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt. They've been quick to turn away from what I have commanded them and have made themselves an idol in the shape of a calf. It's an Egyptian god, by the way. They've bowed down to it and they sacrificed to it and said, these are your, notice, plurality, gods, Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. And so they're dancing before this new God and they're singing before this new God and they're offering this new God. Even the idol itself is made from all the jewelry, from the women it says in the camp and this false God is now lauded. And not only that, the word revelry has a sexual overtone. They're sleeping in front of this God to honor it. And that's why Paul brings up example four. He says, you know, we should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. You're like, what, what story is that, John? Oh, it's out of Numbers 25. When, when Israel was staying in Shittim, the men began to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite women. They started marrying them, who invited them to sacrifice to their gods, and the people ate the sacrificial meal and bowed before these other gods. And so Israel yoked themselves, married themselves to Baal of Peor, that's another god, and the Lord's anger burned against them. See, here's what Paul's doing. Do you notice the parallels? They're, marrying to, they're starting to marry those who did not worship the true living God. They're marrying to unbelievers, which is wrong. And they're worshiping now false gods and thinking they can worship the true living God at the same time. Syncretism, which you cannot do. And they're sexually sinning. Everything that the church in Corinth was doing and said grace covered it all by Jesus is actually happening between Egypt and the promised land. And Paul says, this is really bad. Last example, he says, you know, we shouldn't test Jesus. Wow, hold on. What? 
Oh no, we, we who are married to Jesus and give it, we shouldn't test him as some of them did. Oh, they were killed by snakes. Oh, and don't grumble as some of them did and they were killed by a destroying angel. You're like, oh, John, what story is that? Well, it's Numbers 21. People grew impatient again on the way and they spoke against God and against Moses and they said, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no bread, there's no water and we, have this, we detest this miserable food. The Lord sent venomous snakes among them to bite the people and many Israelites die. And the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned when we spoke against God and against you. So Moses, would you pray that God would take the snakes away from us? And amazingly, Moses does it. And God says to Moses, you make a snake and you put it on a pole. And anyone who's bitten by that, bitten by snakes can look at that pole and live. So Moses made a bronze snake, put it up on a pole. Then anyone who was bitten by a snake and looked at it, that bronze snake would live. The people of God who knew him, tested him, grumbled against him, grumbled against God's leaders, resisted God's vision, said no to God's plans. They did not trust God. They did not love God. They did not move towards God. And yet notice in the middle of these terrible moments where God in his holiness even judges his own people, he always provides hope. And I want you to hold on to that very weird ancient picture of a pole being lifted up with a bronze snake on it because it's going to matter for every single one of us by the end of this message. Paul's like, are you seeing the connection yet? You drawn the lines? So, oh, you as Christians in Corinth are complaining against God's leaders. I'm one of them. You think you know better than your spiritual ancestors because you have the Holy Spirit and you're so smart, but you're not trusting in God and you're involved in idols every single day and you're sexually sinning. So actually, you're no different at all than the people back then. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of ages has come. In other words, we now know everything through Jesus. So if you think you're standing firm, oh, you be careful that you don't fall. Last week was Valentine's and all three of my children were preparing to give out their Valentine's. Do you remember doing this maybe? And so my oldest daughter, who is incredibly organized, prepared. She had 21. Every single one of them was written out. The name, it went in the envelope. It was sealed, and they were ready. And she strategically put one heart on each envelope. Excellent. And then she went on her business. An hour later, I'm sitting in my room with my son talking about something, grocery games, or I have no what. And in walks the dog. And the dog looks at me, and I remember saying to myself, almost out loud, that dog looks guilty. And it's not because I've got discernment or words of knowledge. It just, it looked guilty. The ears were back, the tail was down. And it literally walked in like it needed to confess something. And it looked at me and left. And I remember going, that is so weird. Chewy, are you okay? An hour later, I walk into my daughter's room. Amazingly, none of the envelopes have really moved, but every single chocolate heart is gone. The wrappers are on the ground, but the chocolate is not. I immediately blamed my son. He promised me it wasn't true. Daddy, for real, for real, I didn't do it. Are you sure? For reals, dad, for reals. Okay. So then I said, Chewy. And I found her and there she was. And she was covered in chocolate. Here's the point. When everything is right and everything is organized and all is right in the world, that is actually the place you need to stop, drop and roll and wonder if you're about to fall. The dog knew it was wrong. What the dog didn't know is chocolate is poison to dogs. 
And here's the whole thing that God is speaking through Paul to a church 2,000 years ago and is saying to us as a church that's growing in influence and numbers, but it doesn't matter. What Paul was writing is so critical. When everything is okay, and when you think you know your Bible so well or you love Jesus, you need to stop and ask, am I about to fall? But fall into what? Idolatry. Loving something or someone or another God more than the God we actually already love. If the people of God in the Old Testament kept falling and kept committing adultery on God and kept giving their lives to other gods when God was physically right in front of them, I've said this before. Some of us say, you know, man, if Jesus was just here, everything would be better. Really? God was physically among them, fire pulsating out of this cloud, and they'd seen miracle after miracle, bread from heaven, water from a rock. They had manna. Listen, they saw the 10 plagues, the split sea of the Red Sea, and, and here's Paul's point. You think you're better or more spiritual or stronger than the generation of God followers then? You're not. Actually, You're doing exactly the same thing, except you have the grace of Jesus, which makes it worse. And then in that moment where it's almost like he strips us spiritually naked and we are undone and we realize how bad it is, then the Spirit of God inspires Paul to write one of the most hopeful verses in the whole of the Bible. No temptation has overtaken you. Except what is common to all of us. God has been faithful and is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he'll provide a way out so you can endure under it. Now, this verse or this group of verses has been a comfort for Christians in every generation. It shows how fragile we are, how tempted we are, how sinful we are. But then this is what God says to us. Number one, he reminds us who's faithful, us or God? God is faithful. Number two, God says that when temptation comes, God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, will give you the ability to say no to that sin and will give you an escape hatch every single time. Now, lots of people misuse scripture and make promises, not promise. Listen, this is a promise, 100% guaranteed. There is always power in every Christian to say no to every form of idolatry, and there's always an escape hatch if you want it. But don't misuse this verse. Because this verse has been preached terribly with good intentions. See, God says that he will not let us be tempted beyond what we can bear. This is not talking about car accidents and sickness and acts of God as we call them or tragedy. This is just talking about holiness and loving God. This is about taking up your cross and following Jesus. This is a way we say no to sin. He says, therefore, my dear friend, second time, flee, run, like run from idolatry. I'm speaking to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Jesus? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? So Paul does something brilliant here that we miss, especially in the modern church. He says, I want you to run from idolatry, but not just run anywhere. He says, run to someone. Where? Run to Jesus. And the example he uses is communion. He says, I want you to run from the table of demons to the table of Jesus. And that word participation is so important. See, in the ancient world, eating was a spiritual thing. And if you talk to Orthodox Jews, even today, they will tell you that every single meal, God is at the epicenter of the meal and he is the host. Many of us in our Christian tradition, we thank God for our food and we bless the food. But what we miss is we're actually saying he's at the table with us. Abraham and Sarah ate before God. 
Moses and the people of God ate before God. The priests ate before God. And here's the point. By the time you get to the New Testament, when we start participating in communion, the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Table, Eucharist, it is a guaranteed place of participating or fellowshipping with Jesus. Oh, yes, it's a place of remembrance. We stop and we think and we remember the great death and resurrection of Jesus. He's going to say that in the next chapter. Forever eats this bread and drinks this cup. You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Yes, but it's not just remembrance. It's communion. It is fellowship. See, communion is a guaranteed place of encountering Jesus through the Spirit. The juice and the bread aren't Jesus. They don't turn into anything. They're only symbols. symbols. But let me say this. Every time we take communion in this church, Jesus is waiting at the table when you walk down or Jesus is sitting beside you when it's passed. He is literally by his spirit there. We commune with him and each other. It is not just memorial. And Paul says, because there's one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all share the one loaf. And he says, consider the people of Israel Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar. Here's what Paul is saying very simply. Ready? He says, I want to show you the difference between real worship in a temple and false worship in a temple. We're going to contrast them. And he says, so you know what? Do I mean that food sacrifice or an idol is anything? Or an idol is anything? No. But the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons. Not to God. And I don't want you to be participants. I don't want you to have fellowship with demons. So you cannot drink the cup of Jesus and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. And here's where he gets so in our face and it's so critical. Just because, a de- just because an idol is fake, it's a statue or it's a worldview or a thing, doesn't mean that there isn't something behind the fake thing that is real who wants to steal God's glory and enslave you. Behind all idolatry, are literal sentient beings that rebelled against God at the beginning of time and they hate you because you're a Christian and they hate every human being because we're made in the image of God. And this is what Paul is saying. This is like, look in the mirror, church. You're eating with Jesus and you're eating with demons. You're at two tables having two conversations and you're straddling two kingdoms. I do not want you to fellowship, share with, participate with demons and have a relationship with demons at all. See, and remember this, Corinthians is written to who? Christians. So in other words, here's the implication. You can be saved, I'm going to spend eternity with Jesus and still dance with demons whether you know it or not. You can be saved and have fellowship with Jesus and have fellowship with demons at the same times. Idols in any form, religious, sexual, or attitudinal, behind them are supernatural forces. So Paul ends this section with an incredibly un-Canadian, un-Western statement. Are we Christians trying to arouse God's jealousy. Do we really believe we're stronger than God? By the way, this is right of the Old Testament. Exodus 34, 14, do not worship any other God for the Lord whose name is jealous is a jealous God. When's the last time you were in a church or listening to a worship uh, worship set and the top song was singing about the jealousy of God? Do you notice his name is jealous? In other words, Father, Jesus, Holy Spirit, El Shaddai, Yahweh, Elohim, and oh, jealous. It's not just a descriptor, it's one of his names. It's written on him. Now, years ago, I was watching Oprah, 
and she was saying why she wanted to leave her more biblical roots, not just because of abuse and pain. She said, I could not stand the idea that the God that I grew up knowing was jealous. That did not, and I was like, no. You've missed the whole understanding. It's not the green-eyed monster at the hands of a wicked dad. You, no, you, you've missed it. Jealousy means God loves his bride so much that he wants exclusive love from his bride and there can be no other rivals and no other lovers because he loves the vows and the commitments and he wants to honor her. The jealousy is rooted in holy love, not anger. See, the impulse to worship is human and it is right and it is God-given. But what we worship brings life or death. Idolatry can take religious and secular forms, but in the end, we're always at the center. I've done this many times, forgive the repeat, but it just matters because it, it helps us. In the Judeo-Christian worldview, when a person, a very sincere and good person, worships another god, the Bible says it's idolatry. There's no debate. When a Hindu gives offerings to Ganesh or Shiva or Vishnu or Brahman, it's idolatry. When a Muslim declares that they respect Jesus but he's only a prophet, idolatry. When a Buddhist teaches that you can reach karma and reincarnation through your own work, idolatry. When a Jehovah Witness meets on a Sunday morning and says, well, we worship Jesus too, but Jesus actually is created and is the Michael, Archangel Michael, idolatry. When a Mormon who uses all the same language we use says, and oh, by the way, just so you know, Father God is one of millions of gods that populate the universe universe, idolatry, idolatry. And it's not just formal, it's informal, it's spiritual. Our culture is full of spiritual people who reject formal religious practices, but if you are connecting to spiritual forces and spiritual paths that are not rooted in God, it is idolatry. When you actually do tarot cards and psychic readings and witchcraft and horoscopes or Satanism or Ouija boards or fill-in-the-blank reincarnation readings or seances, you're talking to your dead grandma, who, by the way, is not your grandma. It is a demon. Tea leaves, water witching, Reiki, Reiki energy power. It's idolatry because it is not flowing from God. And it's not just religious, it's secular, sex, money, and power, all beautiful things, all invented by God, given by God. But these gifts can replace God at any single moment. Paul, six times in 1 Corinthians, has said to us, for our own good, sexual immorality is sin. Sexual immorality is where we get that word porneia from, remember? It's what we now use for the word pornography in English. And for an Orthodox Jew, when they wrote down sexual immorality, it was a catch-all phrase for every forbidden practice in the Old Testament for sex. It always includes incest, premarital sex, adultery, one-night stands, same-sex activity, prostitution, molestation, bestiality, and orgies. So if you declare to God, I can do what I want with my body, your sexual life is an idol. When people say, but John, I love God, but you know, we're having sex outside of marriage and we love each other. No, then your boyfriend or girlfriend, it's an idol. When you declare that God cannot tell you what to do with you, who you are, you have become an idol. When you actually say things like, well, you know, actually, honestly, I, I know I need to give money to God, but actually, no, then, oh, I'm sorry, your excuses have become an idol. When we are called to become fully devoted followers of Jesus and devotion is marked by certain practices like celebrating big or connecting small, right, or sharing in the work, how we've defined it here. And you say, well, I'm just sorry you don't understand, John. I'm so tired and I have job and sports and dance. That, that's all fun. None of those are wrong, but your priority has become an idol if you have no time for the things of God. Money is not wrong. Money's fine. Being rich is even fine. But greed, the love of money, oh, that's idolatry. 
I've been watching this series on Netflix called Dirty Money and I am enraged when I watch it. How corporations and banks will screw poor people just so they can get more money. Idolatry! And they'll pay for it on Judgment Day for what they've done. See, this is what God says. I am God and there is no other. When we as human beings come to God and say, but I'm a scientist and I'm a philosopher. And by the way, if you're a scientist or philosopher, you are welcome in this church. We do not disparage those, those academic exercises. But when you declare through science there is no God, or you declare we know better than God, through, then you have exalted yourself above God. Idolatry. Food, travel, fear, family, kids, job, fame. Hate, anger, unforgiveness, history, racism, all can become idols. What you trust in, what you're soothed by, what runs you, what do you turn to? And the very deep, difficult moment in this passage is Paul says, God did not tolerate Israel's worship of other gods, and he will not tolerate any god in this church or any other church either. We are called to a long obedience, a faithful obedience in the same direction. We cannot have affairs on God and think he's okay with it. It's never God the Father plus another. It's never Jesus plus another Savior. It's never the Holy Spirit plus another power source. It is God alone. And in this moment, this heavy moment, let me just stop and remind everyone so you don't think that God is yelling at you and do it like, who is He? He's love, He's joy. Our God is peace, our God is patient, He is kind, He's good. He's faithful, he's gentle, and he's profoundly self-controlled. That's why he has the right to be jealous, because he's never sinned. The God that we keep running from is the best thing in the universe. We have to get to the better thing, the more beautiful thing, the more tasty thing, the more intoxicating thing. And the more intoxicating thing is not a thing, it's a person, a being, and his name is God the Father, found through Jesus by the Spirit of God. And Paul says, do not think as a Christian just because you're baptized by fire and water that God will tolerate idolatry in the church. He will not. Then you say, well, John, well, what in the world do we do? And it's so, it's the right question. I love one scholar that I read this week. He said, the problem with idolatry is it's like breathing air. Most of the time, you don't even know you're doing it. So what do we do? Well, if you are going to fight for a marriage that is dying, You do not avoid the mouse in the room. You go to counseling and you fight for your marriage. So how do we, how do we as Christians who are supposed to be pilgrims and pioneers in our city to be fundamentally different and love righteousness and be marked, how do we move, then we go before God. How do we do marriage counseling with God? We go to the spirit of God and say to him very simply these words, you tell me, because I love you and you love me. You tell me because you're my comforter. You tell me because I know that you'll never humiliate me ever. You want to humble me, baby, but you'll never. You tell me, where are the idols in my life? And I will not fight you when you say what they are. It's when you sing songs and worship and you do this, but it's for real now. Holy Spirit, where are the idols? John Calvin, the great French reformer, one of the greatest thinkers of his day, actually, so beautifully and scarily penned these words when he said that the human heart is the perpetual factory of idols. 
So many of us have said, oh, idolatry is in, in some over faith in some other country. No, no, no. Idolatry is produced the most within the human heart. And so the way we move forward is we say to the Holy Spirit, where are the idols? And then when God speaks to his people and speaks to us personally and we are undone because we realize how bad, how serious, how far we continually walk, even we who are strong, at that moment when we cry out, I am so weak and undone, here is the good news of great joy that is so Christian. Jesus says, oh yeah, but I'm faithful even though you're not. And Jesus says, oh, you think you're clinging to me? No, no, I'm clinging to you. Oh, and you think that you're not letting me go? Oh, no, no, you let go of me all the time. I never let go of you. Hear the powerful, now powerful understanding of the scriptures that many of us memorize but never got it in the context of idolatry. God is faithful. He will not let any single one of us be tempted beyond what we can bear. When we are tempted to kiss the mouth of another idol, he will provide a way out and we will be able to endure it. And so here's what happens. We say, Spirit of God, you show me where the idolatry is. Money, sex, power, relationships, social media presence, uh, spiritual practices. You You just tell me. And then God will say, here's where the idols are in your heart, in your life. And then he says, I have provided the Spirit of God to break the power of those idols and I will give you an escape hatch. You may not look like where the escape hatch goes, but it will be an out. Why does this matter? Because Jesus loves us and wants us to be free. You ever thought about it this way? In heaven, there will be no idols. None. There will never be idolatry in the new heavens and the new earth. And we as the church are the foretaste of what is coming. He wants us to be free. But not only that, do you, can you imagine just for a moment, you know vision is a preferred future, right? Can you imagine for a moment a church where hundreds and then thousands of people so go before the Holy Spirit without resistance and say, you tell me, you tell me where idolatry is and I'll repent and I'll begin to try to work this out through community and your spirit. Can you imagine the leverage the Holy Spirit would have among us when no idols were around, the amount of movement, the amount of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control that would spill out? Do you know how on fire the spiritual gifts in the church would actually really become? Because there's no other looking to any other gods. There's only a love for the Father found through Jesus, through the Spirit, the Spirit of God would be pouring out living water in ways we have never seen. He wants us to be free because idols choke and enslave and he never is like that. And he wants us to be free so we can give life and water to others. Now some of you are here today and you're a seeker or a skeptic, you might be religious or not, and here's my question to you. Have you not now seen your condition how far you are from your creator, from relationship and from real love? The question you should be asking yourself if you're not a Christian yet is, and this is always what happens in these moments, either you say, oh, that's BS and I'm not gonna listen to that guy, or if it is true, then you ask the question, well, maybe is there a means of escape from the mess called idolatry if it's really true? And in that moment, if that's you saying, maybe is there something I need to do? Remember the weird story with the snake. Make a snake, Moses. Put it up on the pole and anyone who is bitten can look up at it and live. That actually historically took place in God's mind to foreshadow what he would do for all of us through Jesus. See, Jesus is the one who's lifted up. That's why Christianity is different than any other religion on earth. 
He's the only one that never sinned, never committed idolatry, and yet took upon the consequences of our idolatry so we all get to come home again. You know, everyone loves quoting John 3.16, but they always start in the wrong place. No one ever quotes John 3.14 because it's weird until you understand it. Just as Moses, listen, seeker, skeptic, lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. Ah, that everyone who believes in him would have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in Jesus will not die, but will not die at the biting of a snake. Isn't that wild? But have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in Jesus is not condemned. Whoever does not believe in Jesus stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. But does it make sense now? It makes sense because if you don't trust in an external savior who's lifted up, you will trust in what? Idolatry. You, something else. That is why Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to God except through me. Because he's the only one who never was touched by idolatry. And he was never the one who was actually overcome by the snake. He crushed the snake. So what do we do? Well, let's take a moment across all, all of us today and all of our places and let's, just, let's pray for a second. Can we do that? Because this is a holy moment Number one, we in this church acknowledge what the church has acknowledged for 2,000 years and what our ancestors, the Jews, our spiritual ancestors acknowledged before that. There is only one God. He is uncreated and he deserves all praise. And he is found exclusively through Jesus, revealed by the Spirit. Lord, forgive us as humans. We're here today and gone tomorrow how we've touched your glory and messed with your glory and played games. We're just, forgive us. Just forgive us. Thank you that you'd be mindful of us, that you'd even spend time with us, you'd even provide ways out for us. So for we who are Christians right across our church today, we just want to say thank you. Thank you for the blood of Jesus. Thank you for the work of Christ. Thank you for the presence of the Spirit. Thank you that you forgive us and that you're faithful when we're not faithful. Thanks that we get to look up and be saved. Anyone want to say amen, by the way? Like, thank you. And Lord, now without resistance, here's what we'd like to say to you, this, uh, to you today. Um, we are your people. We own nothing. Where are the idols in this church and in our hearts? Speak, O oh Lord, speak. Your servants are listening not just in this moment, but over this next seven days, would you speak? And may, in Jesus' name, may the devil not be able to speak and may no other voice be able to speak, only God's. Show us our idolatry and then, then begin to undo it, break the power of it, the love of it, the intoxication of it. Begin to break idolatry in this church and in our hearts and our families and then uh, provide ways out and then bring forgiveness. And lastly, for some of us who are here or watching online who has never, we've never met God really. This is what you need to pray. Oh God, forgive me as a human being for thumbing my nose in the face of my creator and believing that I or something else is more like, just forgive me. I choose at this moment to lift my eyes up 
not to some bronze snake on some pole, but to Jesus Christ. And I ask forgiveness for my sins, for trusting in philosophy or science or religion or exalting my sexuality or, or my job or my kids or whatever it is in front of you. I just, I repent. I say yes to Jesus. Forgive me my sins. I want to be a follower of Jesus Christ and I want the jealousy of God to unwrap me, to be loved in a way I've never been loved before. Lord, continue your strange, unusual work among us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us. To connect to the ministries of C4, visit c4church.com.